Christmas time brings a lot of family around. If you're here visiting family, welcome. So good to have you with us. Who here likes Christmas? Yeah, I love Christmas time. It's so sweet. And one of the reasons I love Christmas is because of the family aspect, right? It's so good to be with family, to feast, to enjoy, you know, memories and to, uh, yeah, think about all that that's happened in the last year and to, to fill each other in. But one of the reasons Christmas is also hard for us is family, right? Uh, man, family, Christmas time, visiting family, just it has a way of bringing up old pains, doesn't it? Brings up old memories of hurt. And uh, that's definitely true for me. And uh, it seems like every time I go home, I come home, you know, I'm, I'm from Cincinnati, so I'll, I'll go down there and we're driving back or flying back and I'm just like, man, that was hard. It's hard to, to be around my family and see the brokenness of it. And my family's wonderful. But this is just the reality that we live in. Right now we're surrounded by people who have broken families. Every single one of us do. For some of us, that's intense brokenness, like cycles of addiction, cycles of divorce, of infidelity. For some of us, there's estranged family members that because of some sin, some grave sin, you can't even be around these family members. For others of us, like me, it's just just a lot of examples of deep hurt. And we try so hard to get over and move past and enjoy one another, and yet it still just lingers. There's brokenness. There's hurt. And friends, if you take a step back outside of this room, it's not just here that people are hurt. You look at the thousand-foot view over these neighborhoods, and you find that every single family, every single neighborhood, moving on out into the nations, this is the case. That... Every people, every tribe, every family, every nation is made up of brokenness at the core. What's my point this morning in bringing all this up? Well, as much as we try, especially around the holidays, to just kind of stuff the the problems and pretend that everything is okay, friends, we are not just moving forever up, upwards towards utopia together. There is a deep problem and it exists in our heart. Every family it, it has deep brokenness from the core. And we're going to be looking at that, seeing in a story at the beginnings of the families of all the earth, how that is also true there. But there is hope for you. And that's what I want to bring to bear this morning. I want to remind you that in the, at the heart of the Christmas story is hope for redemption for your family. But not just for your family, but for all the families of the earth. That's what we're going to be seeing today. My main point is that Jesus Christ, our King, has come to redeem your story and to give every family and nation joy in Him. So let's dive in. Before I jump in, just context, a little context. Genesis, remember, means beginnings. And so this is the, this is the history that we're about to see of all the families of the earth spreading. And this is a, this is a genealogy-heavy passage, uh, which means that it's a little challenging to understand, and there's some weird things in here, but I assure you there are some riches if we press in together. Last week, Ross brought up the, the reality that the earth was flooded, and all of the wickedness of man was put to an end, but there was still a deep 
heart issue that was not yet cleansed. We also heard that God gave the same blessing to Noah and to his sons, the same one that he had given to Adam. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Despite the wickedness, he made covenant with man again and said, I'm not going to destroy the earth, but I'm going to allow you to flourish and carry forth this purpose to bring the image of God to the entire earth. So the earth was theirs, mercifully prepared by God, anew for human flourishing. And now the story turns to what would become of them. So if you have a Bible, let's look at verse 18. It'll also be up on the screen. It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the focus of the story turns quickly from Noah and all of his, his history with the flood and, and the building of the ark to his sons. And that's because of this emerging theme and story of spreading. This story is interested in what is going to happen as man spread on the earth. Now, of the three sons, there's one who gets an extra detail. Did you notice that? Ham was the father of Canaan. This is an important detail because of the story that's about to be told. And we're going to look there now. Genesis uh, uh, verse 20 here. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers, his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. This is devastating. This very first scene after God has blessed Noah, after the flood and given him a covenant, we see Noah have his own tragic fall. This, remember, this is the man who they said walked with God. He's, he's called the blameless man. And yet here he is falling in sin. When I read that this week, I had this gut reaction like, Noah, are you kidding me? Right now, right after you saw the whole earth flooded and all these people that you know get killed, you fall in the same sin? And then I was cut to the heart as the Lord reminded me how often I do the exact same thing when I deal with suffering, right? How when I experience something traumatic, when I, when I suffer in deep ways, I run to other things other than God to cope with those things. I think a lot of times great sins come around the holidays. You know why? Because we, we enter into the suffering that, that our families sometimes can be, and it leads us to overdrink or overeat, or you name the sin. It leads us into sin as we try to cope with our sin. All of us are going to cope, try to cope with suffering that we experience, are we not? But the problem that we so often fall into, the thing that we so often fall into and we believe is that these things can satisfy, that they can relieve the suffering, that they can relieve the pain. But friends, do not buy the lie that these things have any lasting relief for you. That sex or money or any other thing in this world can give you what you're looking for. 
the brokenness that you feel can only be relieved and find rest in God. The focus of this story, well, before I go there, Noah's sin here is another example of the reality of indwelling sin. After the fall, we've been learning that all humanity is, is broken to the core. I've already made mention of this, that, that our hearts are inclined towards evil. We're not inclined towards God, but like Noah, like I just mentioned, we're all inclined to run to other things other than God. That's why banking our hope on human progress is totally empty because of this reality of our human brokenness, our sinful hearts. In this scene, Noah, like his grandfather Adam, falls in a garden. And he's uncovered in his nakedness, and he's full of shame in this situation. It's all pointing us to the fact that Noah's not the Savior. We need another Savior to come. But this story is is not as much focusing on Noah's sin as it is on Ham's sin. So let's, let's figure out what's going on there. Noah is laying shamefully naked in his tent after he, is, he has gotten drunk. I know this is an odd scene. And the way that the, the story tells, it's, it's, not, it's not like just, just like he walks in and, and stumbles upon his father and, and says, Oh my goodness, what is going on? And all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's sinned because he happened to see his father naked. No, there's something else there. He, he, we're told, goes and tells his brothers. It seems that he's trying to, to get his brothers to join in the mockery and ridicule his father in this situation. By contrast, the brothers show such care and honor to their father that you cannot think that Ham's sin is a mistake. It's mentioned twice that they come in with their head backwards. They're walking in doing all kinds of acrobatics to try to cover their father and not dishonor him. When Noah awoke and learned what Ham had done, he said to him, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. He said, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan has already been mentioned twice as the son of Ham. But why is Canaan cursed instead of Ham? Didn't Ham do the sin? Why Canaan, the son of Ham, why would he get cursed? Well, I think that found in this story is something that Western uh, people don't often understand. We think very individually about ourselves, but, but here is a corporate headship reality. There's something about father, son, and all the future generations that come from them that is connected, tied together. Again, we don't think that way very often. We don't think about our parents in the ways that we're intricately connected to them, but they did. Hebrews, Hebrews did very much. And I think this story is simply illustrating something we've already seen in Genesis. Remember, Adam's sin caused grave effects for future generations. 
Adam, the head of humanity, led to the judgment and the fall and the sin of future generations, all of us being descendants of Adam. Likewise, we saw it with Cain. His descendants were affected by his sin. Why are they affected? They're affected because they're influenced. Yes, there is a suffering that comes from just the very fact that the father sinned, but also they're influenced by their father's sin, and they often would follow in the same footsteps as their father. One Genesis commentator helped me here, shining light on this. It says, Hebrew theology recognized that due to parental influence, parental influence, future generations usually committed the same acts as their father, whether for ill or good. In this case, the curse is directed at Ham's son as Ham's just punishment for the disrespect he had towards his own father. Yet the curse was spoken against future generations of Canaanites who would suffer subjugation, and this is what was so helpful to me, they suffer subjugation not because of the sins of Ham, but because they themselves acted like Ham because of their own transgressions. See, I don't want you to look at this story and think Ham has some magical powers that he's like forever damning his, his son and their future generations with a word. That's not what's going on here. Instead, this is an invocation. This is a request to the Lord that God would bring about judgment on those who walk in the path of Ham, in the wicked steps of, the, of, of his son, and that he would bring blessing upon those who walk in the path of Shem and Japheth. As we read the story, we find that this is all confirmed. That the very things that Ham did in living out a wicked path, the Canaanites would do. Israel would interact with them very much in the future, and they would be judged for their sexual immorality and for their wickedness. Shem, on the other hand, from whom Abraham and Israel would descend, walked, for the most part, in the righteousness of their father. Now, I'll come back to the generational effects of sin later, but one more thing I want to mention before we move on. First, uh, we see here three times Canaan is prophesied to become a servant. It says you'll be a, a slave of slaves or the lowest of servants. He who was born equal as an image bearer of God and created to rule with dignity here is brought low to a place of dishonor and subjugation because of his sin. We've seen this again with Adam, with Cain, and now with Ham's descendants. But one of the things that I want to make mention of is that centuries of church history took this verse and grossly misinterpreted it to justify human slavery. You see here, it says that Canaan would be a servant of servants. And what they did is they looked at Ham's uh, children, and many of them descended to Africa. And they begin to justify then, see, Canaan's or Ham's children are, are Africans, and they, he, they were prophesied to be servants or slaves. This is a gross misinterpretation. Focus, the, this passage is not focusing on all the sons of Ham, but actually just on Canaan, who would reside not in Africa, but in the promised land. 
This passage is not trying to speak of, of the future slavery of Africans, but it's focusing on the reality that Israel would, would be the means of God's judgment on, that, on those people groups as they entered into the land. They would be judged for their wickedness. Friends, I just want to say it is a very dangerous thing to build your thoughts, your beliefs off of one or two passages in Scripture without keeping the whole scope of Scripture in mind. We have to be very, very careful. We are arrogant to think that we can't make the same mistakes as our brothers and sisters of the past, right? So this scene abruptly ends with Noah's lifespan recorded and then, then it concludes here, uh, just like it did in chapter five. Look at verse 28 with me. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In these couple verses, we're getting a clue into the, the biblical kind of closing the, the, the storybook on pre-flood era and, a re, uh, and an opening of the new era, that is post-flood generations. And this leads us to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we find something that's, Maybe boring for some of you. For those that love maps and history, this is your chapter. <laughs> Does anyone like that? Anyone a big fan of that? If you, if you love those things, I want you to go home, get your study Bible open or a commentary. Even just Google it, and you can find that this table of nations kind of tracks all the various people groups and where they landed on the earth. It's extremely interesting. It's interesting to me, too, but I don't have time to dive into that and show you all that and unpack where everybody Landed. So, but I will highlight a few aspects. One, this is an extremely detailed list for the Bible of 70 nations that descended from Noah's sons. 70, keep that number in mind. And I also want to say that this story and the Tower of Babel story in chapter 11 are meant to be read together. We're not going to be able to do that right now. We're not going to be able to go into that story. But the, the Tower of Babel precedes this long history of the peoples on the earth spreading. And it provides for us a framework of the division that came on the earth and all the various languages and peoples that would spread from the Tower of Babel. Again, we'll get into that next week. But that's one important thing to note. We also, in this chapter, get, a, get some important details about what the people were like. In verses 9 and 10, we learn of Nimrod. He's said to be the first on earth to be a mighty man and a mighty hunter before the Lord. This man, Nimrod, in verses 10 and 11, we're told, establishes the cities of Babel in the land of Shinar and Nineveh in Assyria. You'll remember these are some of the great adversaries of Israel in the future. He's also identified in these two statements, I believe he's, he's identified as one who takes power by force. He's exemplifying for us in this very little snippet of a man. We're, we're getting a, an image of how the ancient Near Eastern empires would gain power. So even as the earth is filling and spreading, there's a, there's a pattern of war, of people power grabbing, of people looking for self-glory. They're trying to make a name for themselves, just like they do in the Tower of Babel story. It's not about spreading the image of God on earth, but about gaining power for self in one's own name. 
And one other detail I want to mention is that the table of nations here, it, it would have been for, for Israel, Moses' audience, uh, uh, given them a context. It would have given them a context for all the neighboring nations with whom they would interact as they entered and lived in the promised land. Most notably, we, we see that Ham had Cush from whom de, uh, descended the nations of Assyria and Babylon. We see Egypt, to whom Israel was enslaved and from whom the Philistines would descend. We see Canaan, which is given prominent place in uh, in verses 15 and 20, who were the primary enemies of Israel when they entered the promised land, as I've already mentioned. So here in this this genealogy, we're getting a glimpse of the nations that Israel is going to be interacting with. All all these names that you're probably reading are are familiar to us as they they come up in the Bible story. Oh, one more thing. Shem's line here is completing the table of nation. And while it is given a smaller uh, emphasis, we will come back to Shem as chapter 11 will pick up on his genealogy and really carry us to Abraham. But the chapter ends with these words. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. That's where we end in our text today. We've just gotten a glimpse of the first family and the future of those families and how they're going to spread and how they're going to act and interact. And all that might be interesting to you, but... Sometimes you sit in a room like this, or maybe you sit with your Bible open in the morning and you're reading texts like this, and I've heard, I mean, I myself have been like, what do I take away? This is supposed to be time with God, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with it? Like, all these names that I just read. Not everybody loves to study history, right? But there are some things that I want to point out. There's some important theological purposes that I want to show you, and I also want to show you some gospel implications that I think that come out of this text. First implication, the first theological implication is is this, or purpose of this text. This is a meditation not only on the beginnings and the spread of the nations, but also on the fallenness, the division, and the brokenness of the nations. Noah's blessings and curses on his sons provide a picture of the sinfulness, of the hostility that would exist between the nations that would come from them. These nations would not exist alongside each other as equals, but instead would with complex power dynamics. We're seeing the reason that all the division in the war would come about in the future. And amazingly, so much of that division started at the nuclear family. It started with one family making evil decisions and that playing out in future generations. Who followed in their parents' footsteps. A second theological purpose we see in this story, particularly with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, yet another picture of the wickedness of human rulers over nations. It may look different today, but our nation and the nations that surround us have sadly followed the same pattern through history and have left a trail of brokenness of hurt and hurt. So when you see, when you look at your nation and when you look at the nations of the earth and all of the complex war and brokenness that's happening, don't think that we're a strange generation. 
It's highlighting for us that there are sins underneath the, all the brokenness. There's all kinds of stuff, history. This is not one generation's problems. This is a, a centuries of generational brokenness. It shows us that that's the case then. It is the case now. But there's also a positive theological purpose here. I believe that Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he slows down intentionally here in order to linger on the nations and cause Israel to be aware of the nations around them, to know them by name, to be aware of those that they are meant to be a part, bring, have a part in bringing redemption to. You may remember that seven is a number of completion in the Bible. And here, Moses lists 70 nations. That's seven or ten sevens. Ten is also a, a number of completion. And I think that what Moses is communicating with this number that he, uh, here is that he has all the nations in mind. This is not necessarily an exhaustive list, list of every family on earth, but he is wanting you to consider all the nations of the earth. They're being listed, and I think why they're being listed is because God wants us to be aware that he knows every single family and nation by name. He's aware, and he wants Israel to be aware of every single nation, every single family, every single tribe, every single tongue that exists on the earth. God records their names in history, and it shows us that he cares about every single nation. Now, for the gospel implications. As I mentioned before, many of you are not proud of your family history. Like Canaan and his descendants would live in the pain and sometimes the same patterns of sin as their, their father Ham, many of you live in some of the same pain and patterns of sin as your parents. On the one hand, you experience the negative repercussions of their sin. You have issues emotionally. You have issues with, with um, commitment. You have issues understanding what, what is marriage supposed to look like? What is sexuality supposed to look like? Everything is broken because of what you've seen in your parents, there's all kinds of brokenness. But on the other hand, some of you are experiencing firsthand some of the exact same sin patterns that your parents walked in. As you try to cope with your pain, some of you have walked in the very same ways that your parents have. Rather than clinging to God, you've run to those same idols whether to alcohol or sex or money or the other things that I've mentioned. And why is it that, that we so often fall into our parents' sin? We try so hard. You know, we, we say things like, I'll never be like them. I will never do this, right? And yet we find ourselves doing the exact same things. Why is that? For one... Sadly, we're picking up on these habits from youth. We're picking up on our parents' patterns. We watch them. We watch as they deal with suffering. We watch them deal with their, their pain. 
And we end up often doing the exact same thing. We learn and we cope and we respond in the same ways. Parents, if that freaks you out, I say that's a good thing. It should cause you to pray. Pray. This is a cause for prayer. Me and my wife are praying this week, just like, Lord, please do not let us influence our children for evil. Oh, we long for future generations to honor God, to walk in the power of his spirit, not in the flesh. I'm not trying to get, if you're a parent in here with a kid next to you, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I'm not trying to stir up drama, I promise. This is just the reality. This is, if, if your parents were sitting here, it would be the same thing, and on and on and on. We have brokenness. Another reason that, that we often fall into the same sins is because we have the same spiritual enemy as our parents. We have the same spiritual enemy as our parents' parents, as Adam did and as Noah did, who were luring them into deceptive sin. Friends, the devil is, is smart, and he's older than us. He's, he's done this before with our parents and our parents' parents. Whether you're aware of these realities today or not, this can be a crippling realization, can't it? It can be so hard to, to think, oh my goodness, what impact I will make on my children. Oh my goodness, what impact I have made on my children. Oh my goodness, what impact I've made on others. But I don't want you to feel hopeless this morning. I have good news for you. I have good news for your family. It's at the heart of a Christmas story. It's that our Lord Jesus came to redeem our stories. That we don't have to walk in the same patterns of sin. We don't have to live out that same story. I want to show you in Galatians. Would you just open your Bibles there? Galatians chapter 4. We read a couple prophecies. We read in Psalm 72 of a day where the nations would be redeemed, where families would be redeemed, where all people would bring tribute to the Lord and worship the Lord. And all of the prophecies of Scripture, all of it is leading up to this moment. Galatians 4, chapter 4. says, when the set time had fully come, when the set time had fully come, at just the right time, that is, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. At just the right time, friends, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of flesh, what does that mean? It means that he took on the brokenness that we experience. He took on our pain. He took on these same realities. He was born into a family that had trauma and brokenness and pain. It also says he was born under the law. And in the Galatian context, that's not a good thing because the, his, his peers had twisted the law and turned it into not a 
not a means to know God, but a, but a trap, a burden, something that had enslaved them and hurt them. They were under patterns of, of, in cycles of brokenness and misinterpretation of the word. Jesus entered into that reality. He entered into the brokenness. And why was he born? It says that he was born, verse 5, read this with me, to redeem those under the law. Just to redeem those under the law, to redeem us. He came into our brokenness. He was born into a human family with human trauma and pain to redeem it. And not just his story, but the whole family, all the families of the earth, friends. Your family. He came to redeem it. And how are we redeemed? We're told that we might, he came that we might receive adoption to sonships. What does that mean? It means that when we put faith in Jesus, that we are adopted to become his children. To be adopted is to get a new family history, a new family name. This doesn't mean that you just totally shed your, your family and, and you say, see ya. No, it means that, that guys, this reorients your vision of family. It reorients what you can be, what your family can be, what future generations can be, can be as you are adopted into the family of God. You get a new name. You get a new history. You don't have to be defined by the same patterns of sin, the same patterns of slavery, the same patterns of anxiety or fear. It doesn't have to be yours anymore as you were adopted and made new, brought into a new family. Paul continues in verse 6 explaining what it means that we're adopted as sons. It says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. What does that mean? It means that if you're a son of God, you have the spirit in you. Which means you have power to overcome the sin that you are so prone to fall into. We who have the Spirit of God, we're crying out, Abba, Father. That's an example of worship. That means that we don't cope with our sin and our suffering by running to alcohol or any other idol, but we turn to our Father. Abba, help me. By the Spirit of God, we, children of God, we cry out to God. We don't fall in the same suffering and evil. It says in verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Friends, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to this brokenness. Amen? We don't have to fall in the same patterns of sin. Woo! Let's go! Come on! That is good news of great joy. Jesus has come to redeem our family. Our history. Amen. Oh, he wants to create a new family trajectory for you. Parent, if you have been walking in patterns of sin, if you've been harsh with your children, whatever it may be, you can set a new trajectory. Even right now, families, you can redeem what is broken in Christ Jesus. He sets the way for us. He shows us that there can be reconciliation and peace I mentioned earlier that my family has brokenness, and it does, but I also praise God today that he has brought so much redemption to my family. I watched one of my brothers say, I don't know if I can ever look at my mom in the same way 
come to me a week later and say, oh, she's a beautiful woman. She's beautiful at heart. What, how did that happen? It happened because God dunked the situation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he can do it with your family. He can do it with you. Praise the Lord. He also tells us that we are made heirs of God, friends, which means we have an entirely different future mapped out. We have an entirely different future mapped out, one of glory and honor and purpose in God's family, not just here on earth, but also for eternity in heaven, in the new heavens, new earth, I should say. I also want to share good news for the nations. This table of nations reminds us that just as God has not forgotten the nations, we should not forget the nations. Let me back up a little bit. (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited I can't even read straight here. There is hope today in Christ Jesus, not just for the nuclear family, but for all the families and peoples of the earth. We see that so clearly in Scripture. Our God has not forgotten the peoples of the earth. In fact, he commissioned us to all the nations. He said, go and make disciples of all people, of all nations. And this is made crystal clear in Revelation 5 when all of heaven worships Jesus in a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There is redemption for every single family on the earth. But friends, how will they believe in this transforming message unless we tell them? This is a reminder to us today when we read that long list of nations that God still cares about the nations. I want to call you in this season. Grab a a prayer map. Grab a book like Operation World, which which banks the, the nations of the world and gives you prayers for them. And start to go through that as a family. Familiarize with yourself with the nations of the earth because God knows them by name. And he wants us to be praying for them. And he wants some of us to go to them. Oh, that God would raise up some of us as we pray, as we consider the nations, that he would raise more of us up to go. And friends, how will our neighbors in these cities be changed? How will the families be be transformed, our Somali neighbors and our Hmong neighbors and our native neighbors, unless we go to them and share the good news with them? I just want to end with this. If you're broken today over your sin or over your family, or even over your nation or the nations of the earth, I just want you to turn and cling to Jesus who brings us this good news in this Christmas season. He has come for us to redeem our story and to give us great joy in him. And listen, if today you've never done that, if you're in this room and you want this redemption, It's as simple as putting your faith in Jesus, turning away from your sin, saying, I'm no longer able to do it. I know that Jesus is the only answer. Come to him today. Today is the day of salvation for you and for your family and for all that will come from you. I want to end with prayer here, but I want to pray in a little different way. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Band can can come on up while we're praying. If you have 
cycles of sin or brokenness in your family. Generational cycles of sin or brokenness or family trauma. Or perhaps you're feeling fear today over the ways that you're contributing to your family's future with your sin. I want you to turn that over to the Lord right now. I want you to surrender those things and put your faith in Jesus that he is able to reconcile and to redeem all of it. Just take a moment right now. Surrender these things to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Oh God, help us. So much brokenness in this room, Lord. I know many of the stories, Father, and you know them so much more intricately and detailed than I do. Would you give faith to each one in this room that their story is not hopeless? Their history, their future is not set. Their children don't have to divorce. Their children don't have to fail in the same sexual sin. Lord, we look to you and ask for grace for these situations. Please deliver us from the evil one. Help us by the Spirit to overcome. And now as the band plays quietly, I just want to invite you to turn to somebody. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's somebody else in your row. Would you just ask them to pray for you? And I don't want you to talk about it. I just want you to start praying for one another. Let's just turn and pray for one another. Maybe you need to pray with your parent in the room. Let's just pray for one another right now.